This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Book of Lamentations, chapter 5. It's found on page 690 in the Bibles in your pews, if you'd like to turn there and follow along as I read. Lamentations 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we, must, we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands, and no respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased, our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies, is it desolate. Jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the, uh, the man on the right there on the screen is Will Freeman. Actually, it's Hugh Grant, but uh, the character that he plays in the movie About a Boy is uh, Will Freeman. And that last name is purposeful because that's how Will thinks of himself as a free man, free of entanglements, free of responsibilities, free of complications, free of pain. Will has lived, which might say, a very privileged life. His father wrote a pop culture Christmas song, and so every time it comes on the radio, which is really all December long, he receives royalties from this song, which is uh, how he lives. And in the opening monologue uh, to the movie about a boy, Will says, who wrote that phrase, no man is an island? It was actually John Donne, the poet, who wrote that, but Will thinks it was John Bon Jovi. Uh, Both great artists in their own way, I suppose. But he goes on to say, Will says, In my opinion, all men are islands. And this is the time to be one. This is an island age. A hundred years ago, you had to depend on other people. No one had a TV or CDs or DVDs or videos or home espresso makers. Actually, they didn't have anything cool back then. 
Whereas now, you can make yourself a little island paradise with the right supplies and the right attitude. You can be sun-drenched and magical, a magnet for young Swedish tourists. And I like to think that I am that kind of island. I like to think that I'm pretty cool. I like to think that I'm a Biza. And the sad fact is that like any island dweller, from time to time, I have to visit the mainland. That was a 2002 movie, which you probably picked up on with the references to CDs and DVDs. If you don't know what those are, you can ask me later, I'll tell you. But the premise uh, of the film is, you know, Will wants no entanglements, no commitments. He wants no responsibility. And the movie progresses, and he meets the little boy that's there on the screen. His name is Marcus, and Marcus is having a, a really rough time. He's um, picked on at school. His mother is depressed. He's worried about her constantly. He lacks self-confidence, and so he uh, attaches to Will. And at first, Will really um, likes this idea. It turns out that uh, when he hangs out with Marcus, he has an opening into meeting a whole new group, group of women, single moms. They just assume that he's a single dad, and he's happy to leverage this assumption in order to get dates. And so Will buys Marcus shoes. He gives him advice. He even starts to like hanging out with him. But then a crisis hits, things get tough, and Will bails. You see, Marcus is way too needy, way too moody, way too nerdy, and Will doesn't want anything spoiling his island life. And in one of the crucial scenes in the movie, Will says to Marcus, Marcus, you don't understand. I can't help you with real things. That's not what I do. Marcus responds, he says, well, you can try. And as Will leaves, Marcus is left thinking, why don't you care? Why can't you at least try to help? We've been in a series here over the last season on the book of Lamentations. And next Sunday is Easter, and we move from sorrow to joy as we transition seasons, but not yet. Palm Sunday and throughout The rest of this holy week, we hang out a little longer on this concept of sorrow and trouble and lament, life in a broken world. And we've been calling this series The Lost Language of Lament, and we've been saying throughout that a lament is a way to hurt with God rather than apart from Him. That is, pain, trouble, difficulty, sorrow, tears are going to come in this world, but a lament, if we can learn the language of lament, it's a way to hurt with God rather than to hurt apart from him. And we're in the last chapter this morning in the book of Lamentations. And there are no real happily ever after moments here. Suffering lingers. The temple and really all of Jerusalem is still in ruins. We don't get answers. But we do get a direction. We get a sense of where we can look in the midst of our pain. And while the first four chapters are poems, this last one stands out very clearly as a prayer. Jeremiah the prophet leads the people in a communal prayer of lament. And I say communal because you'll notice the corporate language throughout the chapter. We, our, us. And so what I want to do this morning is to join Jeremiah in shifting our discussion from individual to communal lament. To ask the question, what does it mean for us to become a community of lament? 
And here's why this is so important, because not only is it that just simply an honest and true way to live in this world, to, to lament the suffering that exists in the world around us, not only is that simply honest and true, but also lament is the way that we can remain fully and faithfully present in the world. It's the way not to be like Will Freeman, living on an island, detached from everyone else's pain and suffering and sorrow. And so this morning, we're going to talk about what Robert Cunningham has identified as three features of the vocation of lament, the work, the calling of lament. Three features, weeping, waiting, and witnessing. So how do we remain fully and faithfully present in a broken world? It begins with weeping, weeping over the hurt that exists in the world. And this shouldn't be new if you've been around uh, for the last six weeks or so. The book of Lamentations is full of tears. The author, Jeremiah, is often called the weeping prophet. Hundreds of years later, after Jeremiah, as Jesus entered Jerusalem on that original Palm Sunday, he lamented, he wept. Luke chapter 19 records this. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. Jesus was called the man of sorrows. He looked on the plight of his people and he wept, he cried, he lamented. Earlier in Luke 13, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Unlike Will Freeman, running from pain and sorrow, we are called to follow Jeremiah, we're called to follow Jesus in engaging with the hurts of the world. And this then involves tears. Tears first of of compassion. You know, part of grieving is to do a a counting up of what has been lost. That's actually part of the process of grieving is to take stock of what has been lost. And that's partially what's happening here in chapter 5. Verse 2 says, Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. Our homes... To foreigners. Inheritance here refers to their homes and their land. Living in the land of promise was proof of Israel's relationship with God, that they had been delivered out of Egypt. They've been led into the promised land. They've been given a home. And the loss of this then was not just material, but a blow to the very identity of the people of God. Verse 3 recounts the loss of life, the loss of family. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. Verse 4, there's a scarcity of food and water. What once was there in abundance now is very difficult to find. And so they become scavengers as the resources are now under the control of the Babylonian invaders. Verse 5, they're chased down. They're hunted by the enemy. They say, we are weary. We are given no rest. And it's amazing how many times if you read the Old Testament, the notion of the promised land is tied up with the notion of rest. Rest from your enemies. Rest from anxiety. Rest from feeling constantly under assault. And now the people mourn. That rest is gone. Verse 6 is a lament of loneliness. Judah had appealed to Egypt and Assyria for help, but they didn't come. And so they're alone without allies. 
And so Jeremiah leads the people in tears of compassion. But secondly, in tears of contrition. Or you might say, tears of repentance. In the season of Lent, we often say it's not enough to weep for the pain and the evil that exists out there in the world. But part of our mourning is our mourning of our complicity in the darkness that exists in the world. Verse 7, they say, our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. They're confessing the sins of those who have gone before them, acknowledging that this has some bearing on their situation in life as well. But they're not just confessing the sins of the past. They, too, are complicit, and they confess this as well. Verse 16, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And it's hard to know if Lamentations chapter 5 has any specific sin in mind, but in Jeremiah 22, the other book in the Bible that we have from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah warns them that if they don't repent, particularly if they don't repent of injustices done to the poor and to the vulnerable, they will be cut off from the land of promise. I'll just read to you a little bit from Jeremiah 22, starting with verse 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house, kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. And in verse 3 of our chapter this morning, we see what you might call kind of a poetic justice here. The people of Judah have become just like those vulnerable people that they had failed to protect. They become homeless. They become landless. They become familyless. They became orphans and widows and sojourners and poor. The very vulnerable people that they were called to protect. These are tears of compassion but also of contrition. Finally, there's tears of complaint here, tears of grievance, you might say, lamenting that this is not how things are supposed to be. Last week, or actually a couple weeks ago, I gave you Kathleen O'Connor's definition of a lament, and I'll just read it to you again. She says, Laments are prayers that erupt from wounds, burst out of unbearable pain and bring it into language. Laments complain, shout, and protest. They take anger and despair before God and the community. They grieve. They argue. They find fault, even as they cling obstinately to God and demand for God to see, hear, and act. Starting with verse 8, there's a, a cataloging of the horrific suffering going on in Israel, the mistreatment, the oppression. And the temptation is to, to gloss over these things, pass over these things, because some of the things that are, are mentioned here are, are particularly disturbing. But I think to do that not only would prevent us from really understanding this passage, but it also would be dishonoring to you. So I know there are folks in this room for whom have experienced terrible things, unjust things, horrific things. And one of the reasons these things are named as they are in Scripture 
is to remind us that God sees. God knows. And God hates these things. And so it's right to weep and to hate injustice because that's what God does. Verse 8 is a lament that the world is turned upside down. The lowest servants in Babylon now are ruling over everyone in Israel. Verses 9 and 10, they, they are begging for food and often mistreated and killed as they seek the basic necessities. Famine now rules the land. Verse 11, women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. And we're hearing reports of things like this, war crimes and committed by the Russian military in the villages of Ukraine. A couple of weeks ago, I was telling you about a, a book that I was reading about the role of lament in Christian communities in Africa, especially in Congo. Rape was used as a weapon of terror and control during the Civil War there so much that it's hard to find any family not touched by it. And of course, we know that sexual assault, violence, rape against women happens close to home here as well. In chapter 4, the poet zoomed in on the plight of children in the midst of this invasion. But here it's the treatment of women that he's giving attention to, that he's lamenting. Verse 12, leaders are killed in public, strung up for all to see. The elderly are cast out of their places of honor. Verse 13, young men are conscripted into forced labor, labor that was typically done by beasts of burden. So these boys and young men are made to do the work of oxen and donkeys. Verse 15 is kind of a summary statement of it all. The joy of our hearts, he writes, have ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. And then in verse 17 and 18, we see there are really no happily ever afters here. They used to go to the temple on Mount Zion to worship, to celebrate, to be with God's people, and now it's a ghost town. The temple is destroyed and animals prowl about in the ruins. The world is not as it should be. In tears, are the appropriate response in such a world. And so we weep. As we stay engaged with the world, we weep with tears of compassion, tears of contrition, and tears of complaint. To be people of lament, faithfully engaged in a hurting world, we must weep. But we also wait. We're waiting for God's healing to come. You know, it's important not to skip the practice of tears and complaint, but... It's important also not to be stuck there either. To be a community of lament, we need to remind ourselves that God is going to heal this world. And in the meantime, we wait, we watch, we hope, we pray. And when you hear that term wait, you might be tempted to think of passivity. But biblically speaking, waiting is not about productivity at all. It's actually, it's more about posture. It's about where you're looking for the ultimate solution to come from. And we all have a proclivity to look to things other than God to bring about the healing that the world needs. It could be social programs or new legislation or new judges or new kings. But all of these things will eventually be assigned a place in the dustbin of history. And so to watch and to wait then in a biblical sense 
is to have an ever-deepening conviction of the source of true healing. That God is the one who can bring true healing to the world. This doesn't mean passivity or resignation in the face of hurt or injustice. It doesn't mean that we don't labor madly for change to happen in the world. But it does mean that our confidence is not in ourselves or any earthly power or any earthly program. Look at verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. In the midst of all the pain and the hurt and the heartache, the poet Jeremiah is calling us to a kind of spiritual reorientation, reminding us in the midst of the ruins uh, that the world so often feels like, in the midst of it, we are to fix our hope on God's power and might. And listen, without hope in God's deliverance, there's actually no reason to lament at all. There's no reason to believe that things could be otherwise in this world. It's actually belief in the power and the hope of God that generates our complaints about the status quo, the present state of the world. Todd Billings uh, makes this point. He's written a book. He's a theologian. He wrote a book called Rejoicing and Lament. At the age of 39, Billings was diagnosed with incurable blood cancer. And his book is about trying to live well in the midst of a terminal diagnosis. And in the book, he talks about not so much the the book of Lamentations as the Psalms of Lament. We mentioned this in previous weeks, but in the book of Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, like something like 40% of the Psalms can be classified as laments. And here's what he says about those Psalms. He says, it is precisely out of trust that God is sovereign that the psalmist repeatedly brings laments and petitions to the Lord. If the psalmist had already decided the verdict that God is indeed unfaithful or that God doesn't exist at all, they would not continue to offer their complaints. In other words, he's saying that laments are prayers that are loaded up with theology. They are affirmations that the world is broken and this should not be because God has a plan. God is powerful. God is a covenant-keeping God of promise. God is faithful. And so then laments stand in the gap between the pain and the promise. William Cooper authored a lot of Uh, great hymns that have stood the test of time. People still sing in churches today. Hymns like, there's a a fountain filled with blood or, uh, oh, for a closer walk with God. We sing that one here sometimes. But William Cooper also struggled mightily with mental illness during his life. He's in and out of the asylum a number of times. He had multiple suicide attempts in his life. And the last hymn that he wrote was a lament. It was a lament searching for some truth about God to cling to in the midst of feeling like his sanity was slipping away. And the hymn is called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And I'll just read you a couple of the verses. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief 
is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. You hear that posture of watching and waiting in those words? And then prayer. A community of lament is involved in prayerful engagement. Again, the spiritual reorientation is to God, that he's the one who can bring the healing. But that doesn't mean we disengage from the world's hurts. In fact, we engage, we just do so prayerfully. And so our laments are an asking, a pleading with God to see and to act and to bring change into the world. In the Lord's Prayer, it takes the form of the line, thy kingdom come. In the book of Revelation, it's come, Lord Jesus. And in Lamentations 5, it's verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. And there's echoes there of the book of Exodus. In Exodus, it says that when the children of Israel were in slavery in Egypt, they cried out for help. And here's what it says in Exodus 2. See if you can see the, how Lamentations 5 picks up on this. Exodus 2, verse 23. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's what Jeremiah is praying would happen again in the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem. A community that is faithful and present and engaged in a hurting world weeps and waits. And finally, it's a community that is witnessing to the hope of this world. Verse 21 says, Restore to us yourself, O Lord that we may be restored. Restore to us yourself. This is a call for God's nearness. This is a call for God's presence with the people in their pain. Someone asked uh, Stanley Hauerwas once, who's a professor at uh, Duke University, Duke Divinity School, an ethicist. Someone asked Stanley Hauerwas, how would he define hope? And he said, hope is first and foremost presence. Hope is first and foremost presence. That is amidst a hurting world, amidst our own confusion in this life, one of our deepest longings is simply to hear someone say, I'm here and I'm not leaving. I'm here and I'm not leaving. And this is comforting to hear from other people, but how much more so to hear from God himself. I'm here and I'm not leaving. I said there were no happily ever afters in Lamentations chapter 5. And if you need proof of that, look just how the book ends. Renew our days as of old. Then the last verse, unless you've utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. It's kind of ending on a downer there, isn't it? (laughs) But you know what this verse is, though? This is Jeremiah pleading with God to act. And as he's doing so, Jeremiah is pleading or appealing on the basis of God's covenant faithfulness. And this kind of appeal started all the way back in chapter 3 where he said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And so what Jeremiah stated positively back in chapter 3, he poses negatively here in chapter 5. He's saying, 
Surely, God, you have not gone back on your promises, have you? Surely, God, you're not the kind of God whose anger outstrips your mercy. In other words, he's invoking God to act according to his nature, his covenant-keeping nature. And during Holy Week, Jesus Christ also witnesses to the nature of God. And the hope of the world. We quoted it earlier. But before Jesus enters Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, he weeps over Jerusalem. He laments. And then what does he do? He enters the city. He moves toward the pain. In the most anti-Will Freeman act in the history of the world, Jesus plunges himself into the sorrows of the world. And what does that mean for us? Well, it means that as we follow Jesus, we remain a paradoxical people in this world. On the one hand, we have our eyes on the kingdom of God, fixed on God as the hope of the world. But on the other hand, we are fully aware and fully engaged in the hurt and the sorrows that exist now. This is how we witness Jesus' presence in our lives. He's the king who reigns forever. He's the suffering servant king, the crucified God, who, yes, he reigns, but he does so as the man of sorrows. And we bear witness to him as we weep and as we wait and as we pray. Nicholas Wolterstorff wrote a little book called Lament for a Son after his son tragically died. And in the book, there's a passage where he begins to riff on Jesus' words, blessed are those who mourn. And Walter Storff sort of asks, who are these people? Who are the company of mourners? And here's what he, he said. He called, them, he called them, by the way, he called them aching visionaries. That's who the mourners are. And listen to what he writes. He says, the mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, and they ache with all of their being for that day's coming. They break out into tears when confronted with its absence. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there is no one blind, and they ache when they see someone not seen. There is no one hungry, and they ache when they see someone starving. There is no one falsely accused, and they ache when they see someone imprisoned unjustly. There is no one who fails to see God, and they ache when they see someone unbelieving. There is no oppression, and they ache when they see someone beaten down. There is no one without dignity, and they ache when they see someone treated with indignity. There is neither death nor tears, and they ache when they see someone crying tears over death. The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, and they ache with all of their being for that day's coming. We are to be these aching visionaries who ache over the hurts of the world and yet have our eyes set on a vision of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to take a moment now to pray and uh, I'll lead us in prayer, but then I'll I'll give you a moment of silence or two. We've been doing this uh, throughout this series where um, there are some little cards that you can take in the front of your, should be on the front of the seats in front of you or on the back of the seats in front of you, where if you'd like to write out a prayer of lament, You can use this time to do so. And then when you come up for communion here in a a few moments, you can bring those prayers uh, with you. And there are baskets on the sides that you can put them in. But let's pray together and then we'll give you a moment to 
to write some prayers if that's what you'd like to do. Blessed are those who mourn. So Lord, would you make us into a community of, of mourners, of aching visionaries, of people who very much see the hurt in the world and who don't turn a blind eye to it, who don't try to drown it out, but instead who follow the man of sorrows as we weep. Would you help us not only to ache, but also to have a vision of and a hope for, a hope in the kingdom of God. And as we trust in Jesus, may we bear witness by our hopeful engagement in this world. We ask that you make us more like this, even this morning, even as we come to the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.